As a matter of fact, I was uh, just past the slide roll. I remember when calculators, electronic calculators, they were four function, yeah. and, and they were like $300 each. And we had one. I mean, it was like the coolest thing on the planet at the time. A little bit slow yeah. on the division, probably. Yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> definitely. And, and you had to plug them into the wall, and, and they you, were noisy. And they were large, yes. Yes, yes. and uh, you know what? Today's uh, pocket calculators, which cost maybe 5 bucks, depending where you get it. You get it free, free, when, free from banks and stuff. When you open an account, yeah. you get it free at a bank, yeah. You'll notice that those aren't small gears and wheels and cogs in there. Right. Micro-integrated circuits are entirely different physics. I use a laser pointer when I speak. Uh, lectures, that is. Uh, illustrated lectures. And you know what? A laser isn't just a better light bulb. Entirely different physics. I worked on fission and fusion propulsion systems. Fission is what goes on in nuclear reactors, and there are hundreds of them around the world producing power, and hundreds of them under the water, uh, moving mm -hmm. submarines and so forth. Uh, fusion is what goes on in the sun. Well, I worked on propulsion systems involving these, geez, more than 35 years ago. Uh, we haven't built them because we haven't had the leadership that says we want to go out there. But what I'm saying is, in a very short period of time, uh, things changed drastically. And to show how much time is available for that change, just 39 light years from here are two stars, Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli. Now, the galaxy is about 80,000 light years across. So 39 is just down the street. It's in our local neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. It's in Astrologically, yeah. 10,000 stars. So just 39 light years away, we have this pair of sun-like stars. Because of those thousand stars, only 46 are sun-like. Not too hot, not too cold, not too big, not too small. Middle-aged. Not too close together to another star, etc. Mm -hmm. And uh, these two stars are only an eighth of a light year apart, which means they're more than 30 times closer to each other than we, our sun, our star, is to the next star over. They're also, that means you can see the other star from a planet around one looking over at the other all day long. Mm -hmm. And you can directly observe planets. You don't need to guess. And the other interesting thing here, of course, is that these two stars are a billion years older than the sun. Wow. You know, really? they think they would know some things that we don't know. And they would have a far greater incentive for interstellar travel than we do because they got a next door neighbor. No matter which planet, you know, around which star gets started, you've got a natural uh, togetherness there, if you will, the beginning of a galactic empire. <laughs> well, and, and that's interesting because, you know, they say um, uh, necessity is the mother of invention, but it could also be curiosity is the mother of invention. Well, because sure, and you if know, you're the funny looking thing here is that within, depending on how the money flows, within, let's say, 30 years, we expect to have... Uh, radio telescopes uh, on opposite sides of the solar system of long baseline interferometers that will allow us to directly observe planets around nearby stars. That's 30 years. So if somebody else did that where they are, they've known about us for an awful long time. Every library in the neighborhood lists Earth. Nice place to visit. Wouldn't want to live there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's true because if you were physically closer to another civilization and, and you could directly observe it somehow mm -hmm. you would want to get there so you would develop the technology and the travel and, mm -hmm. and, and get yeah. there and visit and them there's another part of this too I, I make one assumption 
about every advanced civilization, and namely that it's concerned about its own survival and security. That seems reasonable to me. Every society we know is concerned about its survival and security, even though it may do stupid things, but you know, like destroy the environment and stuff like that. But right, uh, yeah. we still national security. Uh, what are we spending this year? Uh, oh, four hundred and some billion dollars, billion. Uh, you yeah. know, on, in the United States alone, something like that. Anyway, if you make that assumption, then you say you've got to keep tabs on the primitives in the neighborhood, but only close tabs on those primitives who show signs of being able to bother you. At the end of World War II, there were three signs that soon these idiot earthlings, this primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare, I think that's a good way to describe us, incidentally. Uh, well, I think it's accurate. There were three signs to any visiting aliens that soon these, this primitive society would be going out to bother them. Soon meaning a hundred years, let's say, which is nothing on a cosmic time scale. Just look back a hundred years and you'll see how much has changed. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the three signs were <laughs> excuse me, nuclear weapons, which fill the atmosphere with goodies that can be easily measured. Uh, powerful V-2 rockets, which were not being used to deliver the mail from Germany to England. Mm-hmm. And uh, powerful electronics, uh, radar in, in particular. And some of the strongest signals leaving this planet today are from powerful radar systems. So you put all those together, isn't it amazing that the only place in the world in July 1947 where you could study all three of those was southeastern New Mexico. First atom bomb was tested at Trinity site on the northern edge of White Sands Missile Range in southeastern New Mexico. Uh, the captured German V2s were all being tested there. And that's where we had our best radar to track the rockets, which often didn't go where they were supposed to go. Now, indeed, I had a, a uh, English astronomer very haughtily say on a television program over the well, they could have gone to the Soviet Union. No, they couldn't, because the Russians didn't test their first day bomb until 1949. So I don't think it's any coincidence, in other words. And it seems to me reasonable that everybody in the neighborhood is either ahead of us or behind us. There's very few at the same level of development, because it takes so little time to go from Kitty Hawk with the Wright brothers to uh, supersonic transports. Well, a hundred years is nothing. How come it takes so little time, though? I mean, because... Once you get started, and once you decide, in our case, that for the military purposes, we need to develop better technology for weapons delivery and defense and so forth... Suddenly the money is there. The money is there. Look, when I was working on nuclear airplanes in 1958, way back then, you know... <laughs> uh, General Electric Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department in Cincinnati, Ohio, Evendale, actually, just north of Cincinnati. We were spending $100 million a year. We had 3,500 people full-time, 1,100 of whom were engineers and scientists. That was $1,958. It wasn't six professors and 12 grad students, in other words. And the whole purpose would be to develop a long, long, long-range bomber, you know, that could fly for a couple thousand hours without refueling. Uh, you know, if you just wanted to, cap- to carry people from place to place, nobody would spend that kind of money. The same with nuclear rockets. We were spending lots of money. So, uh, if you get a, a critical mass of people, and the war, it's the first war in which the technology was enormously different at the end 
proximity fuse, jet fighters, uh, atom bombs, uh, a whole slew of things. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not saying what that tells you about man. I've often said that maybe uh, Earth is the devil's island of this corner of the galaxy. They dumped all the bad boys and girls here, and that's why we're so nasty to each other. Uh, I wonder, but... <laughs> well, you know, don't forget that Georgia and Australia were both started by convicts. Yeah. Those who wonder about such things. I mean, it, it's not... For all we know, there have been 20 civilizations on this planet over the past billion years that have been destroyed, either by natural means or by war or whatever. We We don't know much about the past history of the planet. It doesn't matter if you think that uh, Bishop Usher was right when he said the Earth was created... On Thursday afternoon at two o'clock in four thousand and four BC, because that wasn't that long ago. But as soon as you say, uh, "Hey, try four and a half billion years ago," then you say, "Well, what do we really know?" There was a, a rich uh, amateur archaeologist named Henrik Schliemann back around the eighteen seventies. He read the uh, Homer's uh, story of uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey and stuff, and he figured out where Troy ought to be. And the historian said, what are you talking about? There's no Troy. If there had been a Troy, we would know about it. Well, he was rich enough to afford to pay people to dig down 75 feet where he thought Troy ought to be, based on the tales. And you know what? He found Troy. Now, that was only a few thousand years ago that Troy existed. How much of the planet have we explored down 75 feet? Not much. Not as much to know the entire history of the planet, that's for sure. No. And so, if we get back to the SETI guys, just to get go around the wiggly sort of way, uh, they have a strong resistance to outside ideas. You read any book on SETI, and almost invariably they will take pot shots at flying saucers. Never do they talk about the five large-scale scientific studies that I begin all my normal lectures with. It's as if they didn't exist. But scientists are supposed to study evidence first and reach conclusions later. These guys reach the conclusion. Ain't nobody coming here. If there were, I would know about it. I don't, so there must not be. So there's no point in my wasting my time. Uh, Dr. Shostak's latest book, uh, Cosmic Company, I think it's called, uh, he asked, why have they never landed? Well, Ted Phillips in Missouri has collected more than 5,000 landing trace cases from 75 countries. Seth asked, how come they've never been seen on radar? Well, look at the fine paper done by Dr. James E. McDonald, professor of physics at the University of Arizona, his congressional testimony in 1968, mind you, uh, where he gives 41 excellent sightings, and a number of them are radar visual cases, multiple witness radar visual cases. And we started uh, a few minutes ago about Carl Sagan, and he ignores all the data. He had the gall to say that there are interesting sightings that aren't reliable, which is certainly true. There are reliable sightings that aren't interesting, which is also true. And he concludes, but there are no interesting and reliable sightings when the largest study ever done for the United States Air Force showed exactly the opposite. The higher the reliability of the sighting, the more likely to be unexplainable. But he doesn't reference that study. It's been, I've sent it to him, I've you know, sent him comments about it and all the rest. There, that study, uh, Project Blue Book Special Report 14, 
Largest study ever done for the United States Air Force, done by Battelle Memorial Institute in Columbus, Ohio, isn't mentioned in 13 anti-UFO books, even though every single author of those was well aware of it. You can see why I get a little uh, ticked off at some of these nasty, noisy negativists with their research by proclamation. They, they follow the four basic rules of debunkers. And if anybody listening, these work for any field you want to debunk. Uh, it's easy. First rule is what the public doesn't know, I'm not going to tell them. The second rule is don't bother me with the facts, my mind's made up. The third rule is if you can't attack the data, attack the people. It's a heck of a lot easier and nobody will know the difference anyway. And the fourth rule is do your research by proclamation. Investigation is just too damn much trouble. <laughs> you can you can get rid of any idea, whether it's ghosts or any other paranormal or whatever you want to call it, ESP, you know, reincarnation. Follow the rules. It's easy. Well, I've run into people like that, and evidently you have too. Well, a clear, a clear cut case of that. I mean, it, I don't want to go off the subject, but I just uh, I've read up on this, and I've actually seen. I rented this special, um, uh, and I think you did mention his name a few minutes ago, Doctor Shock, actually on the Sphinx in Giza, um, where he brought. He's a geologist, but he's a he's a he is a he's a doctor in geology. He's a master geologist, and. He has brought evidence, solid, conclusive evidence, to the Egyptian High Antiquities Council saying, look, this Sphinx is much, much older yeah. than what you're saying it is. I have proved it right here that the, the, the erosion on the side of the Sphinx is from water damage. Well, that makes that's kind of strange. We're in the middle of a desert right now. That may, But, you know, when you trace back, you can trace back through software nowadays and find that 10,000 years ago, there was water on the Giza plateau. It was a more of a, a it was more of a how would you say a wetland precipitation. Um, so we're talking ten thousand instead as opposed of to as, well as opposed to four thousand five hundred. Oh, four thousand five hundred. It's all you know, yeah. give or take who you talk to. Um, and the same those those four assumptions that Stanton just mentioned, those are all coming to play. They don't want to hear anything about it. There and as opposed to that, they're going to attack. Dr. Shock, as opposed to maybe listening to what he has to say. It's a perfect example right there. And you just said a second ago, Stanton, that this can tie into anything, ghosts or whatnot, because that's the same exact thing that happened. I've, I've seen it in, in several different yeah. uh, paranormal or, you know, paranormal, I guess, uh, related, off related. Show, offshoot topics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there's, there's another part of that, too. Uh, I'll play amateur psychiatrist. Lord knows they play amateur ufologist. <laughs> they do. Uh, a good example, incidentally, uh, a paper by a Harvard University psychiatrist who showed that there is a Freudian explanation for UFOs. The round symmetric disc shape is an obvious symbol for the female breast. The large cigar-shaped mothership is an obvious phallic symbol. And we don't need to worry about any of this. It's just human nature. Well, he provided absolutely nothing to back this up. Now, I'll bring in some amateur psychiatry, if you will. <clears throat> what I found is that there are some very well-educated people who would readily admit that if uh, aliens were visiting Earth, that would be a big story. Nobody seems to want to deny that. But these are people who take great pride in their knowledge of all the important stories. New York Times, Washington Post, etc., astronomers. So if aliens were visiting here, they would know about it. 
and they don't, so they must not be. <laughs> and anybody who says they are must be some kind of a nut, and you have a self-fulfilling prophecy. I have seen no evidence of this. And, uh, of course, they haven't. They haven't looked. It's not worth their time to look. And they don't want to admit that they've been wrong for 57 years, too. So, you know, again, the same thing applies in other areas. It's not just ufology. And it's sometimes useful to look at how much our ideas have changed. Continental drift. It took years before that was accepted. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it wasn't something new, but it took a long time to get people to come around to it. The size of the universe, the age of the universe, the processes that produce the energy, uh, all of these were in conflict for a long period of time because people didn't want to... And medicine... There was a doctor who almost got fired because he tried to get other doctors to wash their hands between <coughs> doing uh, autopsies and delivering babies. Ew. You know, well, the mark of a good doctor was how much blood was on his apron. Yeah. His lab coat, I should say. Well, I you suppose. know, <laughs> also, also for, for thousand, a thousand years or, or more, the earth was flat. Absolutely. It was completely flat. It was not a sphere. The Earth was flat. Anybody can see that. All you got to do is go outside and look. Yeah, and you can see the the edges of it. <laughs> yeah. The horizon. The horizon. Go, it's flat. Yeah. So it was flat for the longest time, and uh, until until somebody you know took what Columbus and all them to uh, figure it out. Well, you know, I should mention while we're at it, and people hopefully are listening, that uh, I do have a website at www.stanfriedman that's F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N dot com mm. uh, there are a number of articles on it background information, some papers one of the articles on it, and this is why I bring it up is uh, a challenge to the SETI specialists it's called the UFO challenge, isn't it? it am I correct? Oh, no, that's to the Air Force okay, sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry, got that wrong <laughs> there's several challenges yeah. one of them has to do with the SETI people uh-huh and I go in kind of a lot of detail as to what's wrong with what they say and how they say it. And uh, for the Air Force, too, of course, because one of these days I'm going to put out a paper on lies the Air Force has been telling us about UFOs. Then awful lot about them. I mean, awful lot of them. But everybody's aware that they originally said about Roswell it was a radar reflector weather balloon combination. That was 47, and uh, 47 years later, they admitted, oh, you know what, we lied back then. It wasn't that. It was really a mogul balloon. Well, they lied when they said that. And then they lied when they said it was crash test dummies that people were talking about. I mean, there's the height of the ridiculous. Um, that explanation for claims of bodies associated with Roswell. And the reasons are very straightforward. A, none were dropped until after 1953. So you got time travel for crash test dummies to get back to 47. Secondly, <laughs> I met with the Air Force colonel, retired, who had been in charge of the crash test dummy drop program. And he said, Stan, uh, look, for that program to be meaningful, we had to use dummies that were the same size and weight as pilots. And I've got pictures, which I use in my lecture. The dummies were six feet tall and 175 pounds. And no way to squash that down to a little guy, three and a half, four feet high. Big yeah. old eyes. Gray with slanted eyes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, with a big head and, you know, practically no nose, mouth, etc. Mm-hmm. And four fingers, not five. <coughs> so uh, th- there's a whole bunch of other things. I mentioned Blue Book Special Report 14 before. And uh, the Air Force put out a press 
release about that in 1955, and they had a statement in the press release, which got very wide distribution. The report didn't. It said, on the basis of this report, we believe that no objects such as those properly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. Even the unknown 3% (coughs) could have been identified as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available. Well, that takes care of the problem. The only difficulty is when you look at the data, the unknowns weren't 3%. They were 21.5%. And it was a separate group called insufficient information, 9.5%. By definition, if there wasn't enough data available without a sighting, it could not be listed as an unknown. So you're talking about a third of the data <laughs> yeah, well, instead no, of 3% was questionable. No, no newspaper in the country pointed out that the number percentage of unknowns was seven times what the public was told and was completely separate from the ones for which there wasn't enough information. Statements like that have been made every so often in the 50 years since, or 49 years, I guess it is. Uh, So, you know, we got a whole long list of these lies. Um, They're not the only ones who lie. I get a lot of fun out of my audiences when I show the whited-out papers from the NSA, National Security Agency. For a long time, I got a real kick when I'd show the blacked-out documents 80% 80% blocked out that you get under freedom of information for them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I saw <laughs> a lot of that. rule passed in Washington, making it harder to keep old stuff uh, classified. So they got nice. They became nice guys. They put out a much less highly censored version of an affidavit justifying withholding 156 UFO documents. Only 20% blacked out. And they finally released the 156 documents. Unfortunately, they used white out on all but like two lines per page. <laughs> The rest was supposedly sources and methods information. That was filed under UFOs, you understand. And now anybody who wants to believe that, I've got a bridge down in Brooklyn. I'd be happy. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, so they lie. And they lie about me and their reports on Roswell. I don't like that either. Um, they are not to be trusted. The kicker is, why hasn't the press gone after them? And somebody can say, well, it's the corporate entities who now own all the major media and stuff. You know, I don't know. But it's easy to prove that they've been lying. Uh, and I don't like people to lie, especially about me and widely distributed reports. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be? <laughs> it is frustrating. And when Colonel Weaver will duck any attempt, to, he's the guy who wrote the two big Air Force the Roswell report. One of them is Truth versus Fiction in the New Mexico Desert, and he supplied the fiction. And in that report, incidentally, they said they weren't going to say anything more about Roswell, and then a couple of years later they come out with uh, the Roswell report, case closed. Yeah, that was They weren't going to say anything, but they this is the crash test dummy one. That that was big. That was actually big news, and and the, they were reporting it on the news in the major media outlets as, oh yeah, it was just crash test. I mean, I mean, they didn't even look at the other side to just saying, uh, no. no, it's not. It it's not possible. And I I was in England when I heard the broadcast. I couldn't believe it. Fortunately, there was a reporter at the news conference that I heard that asked, when did they drop those dummies? And when they said 53, at least he raised an eyebrow to say, well, you know, wasn't Roswell in 40? He said, well, people's memories were confused. Well, I got rid of that the easy way. Didn't <laughs> yeah, five years difference. 
Six, oh, I'm sorry, six years. I, yeah, I'm not even calculating right. Oh, Do you God. know what? Two plus two, quick. Come on. Do you know what? We we Ghostly Talk reached a new low when we interviewed um, uh, the author from uh, Indiana. Um, I'm not I'm not doing very well with names today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's going to be at the Michigan Ghost Conference. Troy, Troy Taylor. Troy, Troy Taylor. Taylor. We reached a low when we interviewed Troy Taylor. We asked him if he had ever seen a ghost because he's a ghost. He writes about ghosts, right? Mm-hmm. So I thought this might be a good opportunity to ask Stanton Friedman, have you seen a UFO? No, I hate to admit it. I have never <laughs> seen a UFO, never met an alien, but... Look, I chased neutrons and gamma rays really for 20 years. And you can't really see those never either. Never saw one of them. I've never seen Tokyo. Mm. But, and, and yet you believe it there. exists. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've talked to... Look, I check all my audiences around the world. And I just added Ireland to my list of countries in which I've spoken just a few weeks ago. And at the end of my lectures, I normally ask, uh, how many people here believe they've seen what I would consider to be a flying saucer. The title of the lecture is Flying Saucers Are Real. I lambaste the nasty, noisy negativist. So they know where I stand, but they're mm. not sure about the audience. And the hands go up hesitantly, people looking around, you know, make sure mm. it's okay. I start counting as quickly as I can. I see two hands on the same side of the hall, and I count out loud, because I can see the whole audience from the stage. And typically, it's 10% of the audience which is a lot of people. If I got 500 people, that's 50 50 people who've had sightings. But then I ask, how many of you reported what you saw? And probably none. Yeah. Now, if there's anybody left, uh, I will say, uh, how many of you were in the military at the time? If there's still anybody left, I ask them to tell us about it. Kind of sneaky, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to say, right here in uh, the Haunted Basement Studios, which is where uh, Ghostly Talk is done, we happen to have our our sound guy, Will. (laughs) (laughs) That's Will over there. He's seen uh, UFOs on several occasions. We're we're in Michigan. Michigan, and um, there's... uh, If you hold your hand out... In, and and picture a mitten kind of thing. Yep. There's the thumb hanging there on the end, and yep. we're we're like just south of where the middle of the thumb is, and in in the middle of the thumb is like evidently a a, a very popular spot for UFO sightings. And Will lives farther north than I do, so so he's uh, he's up near there, and he has actually seen UFOs. So so you've got 25 percent here, Karma. Have you seen a UFO or were I haven't personally seen it. I've seen it on a newscast. Oh, you saw the newscast. Okay. okay. So 25% here, but he wasn't in the in the military at the time. Well, when I get those people, I get some great responses to my question. I mean, one guy in front of 1,300 people said, I can't. They told me not to say anything when I asked them to tell us about it, which was a great Ooh, line. Yeah. I had another guy in Indiana at a Indiana University in Indianapolis who said, uh, they took my pictures. And I'm waiting for the rest of the story, and everybody else is, and he says nothing more. And so I say, look, I'm not asking your name. You don't need to stand up, but I'm sure the rest of the audience would like to hear the rest of the story. And everybody claps. So he remained seated. He was flying a four-engine Air Force plane out over the Pacific. There was a plane 20 miles ahead. It radioed back. This is daylight. There, There was a saucer heading their way. They had gun cameras. They took pictures. They radioed the base they were going to when they landed. The pictures, of course, were taken. Uh, Pilots don't take film.
Yeah. Oh, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they were then debriefed and told never to say anything. Had another guy who said uh, saucer flew right around my helicopter in Vietnam. Well, we thought we were going to get slaughtered because we figured it was a new Russian vehicle. And uh, nothing happened. It flew around us a couple times, took off. So I reported it as you're supposed to do. New enemy technology, you know. And the next day, the commanding officer said, uh, Lieutenant Jones, you didn't see anything strange yesterday, did you? Yes, sir, I reported it. You didn't hear me, Commander Jones. <laughs> you like flying? That wasn't a question, that was an order. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, oh. yeah uh, you like flying? Yes. You didn't see anything, did you? No, sir. And I've heard variations on that theme. So uh, it, it's there's a lot going on out there that we don't hear about. And people, uh, the public is afraid of ridicule. The military guys are afraid of retribution, if I can put it that way. Uh, I worked under security for 14 years. I, it, it's easy to keep secrets. Mm -hmm. For those who think that secrets can't be kept, uh, I mean, with the Internet. Well, I was at the Eisenhower Library last November and uh, dealing with MJ-12 documents and uh, looking for certain examples and I asked one of the archivists, I said, uh, how many classified documents do you still have here? Oh, about 300,000. Oh, my God. Jeez. Ike went out of office in 1961. Now, admittedly, they have a total of about 15 million, so it's not a high percentage, but right. 300,000 from back then are still classified? It's easy to keep things classified. Another example, a kind of funny one, the... Uh, Naval uh, Research Lab, NRL, in 1995, published a commemorative booklet, you know, saying all the nice, the important things they'd done for national defense in the previous 75 years, their 75th anniversary. One of the things they had done was to launch the first electronic intelligence satellite, the Corona satellite. And interesting thing is that it was launched in 1960, this was the first time they'd ever talked about it, 35 years later. Wow. Incidentally, the first 12 launches were failures. They were all supposedly scientific satellites. The 13th one worked and got more information about Soviet electronic systems, radar systems, etc., than all the U-2 flights which had preceded it. But it was kept secret from 60 to 95, 35 years. That's of course, secrets can be kept. That's you keep them by telling everybody everything. I mean, having a security clearance doesn't get you access to everything. There's a little thing called need to know. Mm -hmm. And I ran across this. I was working on radiation shielding for nuclear airplanes. And in the classified nuclear science abstracts, there were listed reports from the Navy nuclear submarine program on radiation shielding. And I had the right clearance, acute clearance, but... Admiral Rickover wouldn't give anybody outside his program a need to know. So this is guys on our side. But, I mean, that's how the system works. And so I find an awful lot of naivete. I, I get people telling me, uh, and this one I don't understand because I don't know where they get it from, that everything is declassified after 20 or 30 or 40 years. And I say, no, not true. Yeah, that is absolutely not true. I mean, there are some things that have stamped on them, you know, downgraded after 10, 20, 30 years, whatever. But to say that everything is, that's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Yeah, that is not true. Do you know, there's this one story. I ran, uh, I ran up against this one fellow, not, well, I just, 
met him. He you actually run into him. Yeah, I didn't run into okay. him. Thank heavens, because he wasn't—he's a police officer. Oh, uh, highly respected, you know, in the community and everything like that. Before he became a police officer, he was at Mount Rainier. In, and that's what a military is that military installation they have towers this is how he described it to me they have towers all around and they have to keep watch that's what his job was and um, there were several times when they would see something so they'd call the other tower and say do you see that or whatever and some of, sometimes it was on their radar screens and showing up electronically sometimes not and they would call the other tower and they'd say, you know, do you see that? What is it? And they go, well, yeah, we see it and um, uh, we're not going to talk about it. So then they go, oh, an unreportable then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. that's, uh, Things- I talked to guys who were in uh, control of some of the flights that go from uh, the United States to Europe. They cross uh, New Brunswick, Canada, where I live. And uh, up in Moncton, Canada, they have the control center. And a radar guy told me that they often had strange things that apparently were U-2 or SR-71 aircraft that would be flying very high, would come down and get refueled, and then go back up again. And they simply didn't talk about them. Right. I mean, you don't talk about these things. You don't put it in any official report. No. no. You you just don't even report you don't certain it. things at all. Yeah. And in, in this day and age of documenting everything, they do, I know they want they want to document everyone who walks into a. I know in my job, every every move I make, business related, has to be documented. Right, it has to be. If it isn't, well, I get chewed out. Give you an example in the U.S. government where it wasn't. One of the members of the Majestic Twelve group set up by President Truman in uh, September 1947 to deal with crash saucers and such was Dr. Vannevar Bush. And he was head of the Office of Scientific Research and Development during World War II, sort of Roosevelt science advisor. <laughs> and uh, in his oral history, he was a member of MJ-12, and I'm a real fan of his. There's a Bush building named after him at MIT. He was head of uh, the National Aeronautics, and well, the group that preceded NASA, uh, the um, NACA, National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics. But during the war, he wrote in his oral history that they had weekly meetings of himself, General Leslie Groves, who built the Pentagon and also the big constructions having to do with the Manhattan Project to develop nuclear weapons, uh, Secretary of War Stimson, and Dr. Conant, who was president of Harvard, I guess. They had weekly meetings about the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. There was no secretary... No minutes, no agenda. That's how they ran that program, because Roosevelt trusted them. He had other things to do. You take care of this, I'll take care of this, and they did it. So there isn't always a big paper trail, and the kind of paper trail I'd like to see on at least six occasions after my lectures, usually, I've been told about, uh, this is by former military people, who say, they were present when three airplanes went were sent up after a flying saucer and only two came back. Or two went up and one came back. Uh, six different instances I've heard of. Now, if I've heard of six, you've got to believe there were a lot more than that. Oh, yeah. And none of these guys were seeking publicity or anything. They were trying to be nice guys to me because they liked my lecture, I guess. <coughs> 
So uh, where's the paperwork? Now you say, well, how could they keep that secret? Well, I'll tell you, for more than 20 years, we and the Russians sent our reconnaissance airplanes up toward the other country's borders, bristling with electronics to find out you know, how quickly they responded and how could we fight them with electronic countermeasures, all this kind of stuff. And on a number of instances, planes were shot down by both sides. I mean, ours were shot down by them, theirs by us. But on one word in public for more than 25 years, families were lied to. You know, plane went down at sea, unfortunately, no body, sorry, uh, on both sides of the Iron Curtain. Wow. Oh, these secrets do get kept, mm. and there may be secrets there. And one of the funny things that happens, I've been to 20 archives, and one time at the Eisenhower Library, I'm running across intelligence stuff from the Truman era. So I asked about this. Doesn't this belong over at the Truman Library? He said, look, a lot of stuff was carried over from Truman to Eisenhower, and uh, it wound up at our place, not theirs, mm -hmm. because it didn't get shipped out when the other stuff did. So how much stuff is there that we don't know about? Who knows, but it's big. When you go to the National Archives, the fancy new building in College Park, Maryland, <coughs> it's an enormous place. And we're literally talking billions of documents. And the frustration that in involves the <laughs> Air Force Headquarters files, Record Group 341, it's 9,800 feet of material it was. It's been added to, but that's as of 10 years ago, let's say. 9,800 feet? It's filing cabinet. Oh, my gosh. Now, has anybody been through all that? A lot of it's still classified, you understand. But, of course, nobody's been through all of that. That's just through the period of, like, 1957, from, say, 48. Uh, Air Force was formed at the end of 47 uh, until 1950, less than 10 years. A thousand four-drawer filing cabinets? You know, and I, I get people who say, what do you talk about? Books and archives? Why don't you just use the Internet? No. And I say, none of this stuff is on the Internet. Yeah, exactly. They didn't scan it and put it on the Internet. No, they didn't image the files and when, put them up on a server. When you go when you go to these places, I, from what I understood, one of the difficulties with freedom of information, other than when you finally do get something, it's all blacked out, or in the new, newer cases, whited out, mm -hmm. um, you have to know exactly what document you're looking for, don't you? No. At these places, I go as a, basically a historian, not as a freedom of information. I, oh, okay. okay. They're, they're there to serve historians. What you do is you ask for the finder's aids for one of, let's say, there are 15 different uh, finder's aids at the Eisenhower Library for National Security Council material. At one time, they had over 300,000 pages of that stuff. Wow. And uh, <clears throat> the finder's aids lists by box, file folders in a box. And so you get a lot of stuff to go through. And then you ask for those boxes. It just gives very cryptic titles for the file folders. And then when you get them, uh, the box, you can only open one file folder at a time, only one box at a time. Uh, you will then find uh, a number of withdrawal sheets on which is listed, uh, you know, two pages, top secret, memo, Joe Smith, Tom Jones, uh, January 31st, uh, 1953, uh, and it's top secret. And you don't know what the subject is. You can request mandatory classification review of that document. You have to write it down on a sheet of paper, and then you ask for a bunch of these things. And 
the time to respond, not from the library, they're good guys, but from, say, the National Security Council, runs two years to six years. Oh, my gosh. And so occasionally you hit something, and I, I show in my book, Top Secret Magic, and in my final report on Operation Majestic 12, uh, you, you get some good stuff. But, you know, it, for a while there it was, gee, I wonder what I asked for. <laughs> <laughs> Because you have no uh, idea, so you get the actual thing, if you get the actual document. Yeah, now, they may say it's still being withheld under National Security, Section B and C and whatever. But the library puts in the request real quick. But the NSC may say, well, we think the CIA ought to look at this, and they'll say we think the Air Force ought to look at this. And Can you imagine waiting six years for a response? I mean, you know, you're probably going to be dead. And when I went after some CIA stuff, it took them two years to give me an initial response, and they sent me some unclassified stuff. When I appealed, it took them three years after that to respond to my appeal. And I got uh, three documents, which you could read on several pages, eight words per page. Oh, my gosh. You know, so people think, uh, when I speak in Europe, uh, they think that uh, Americans can get anything they want with freedom of information. <laughs> There are many countries that don't really have freedom of information. And you try to tell them that, no, that's not how it works. There's a whole sheet of uh, a list of reasons for not releasing data, you know, personal data and stuff like that. Every agency has such a list. I put some of them in uh, uh, Top Secret Magic. Matter of fact, I ought to give a special offer to your listeners, watchers, whatever you want to call them. Uh, if you want a copy of my book, Crash and Corona, The Definitive Study of the Roswell Incident, autographed personally. Wow. And mm -hmm. a copy of my CD-ROM, this is a computer crowd here, UFOs, <laughs> The Real Story, everything you always want to know about flying saucers on a stupid little disc are going to be replaced by a machine, which I much appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> you can ask me 50 questions and I answer them all and there's all kinds of stuff on there. And the third item is Volume 2 of Flying Saucers, our review, a video, 78 minutes long, uh, some of which was shot at the Space Center. The whole package, all three items, of $45 value, <laughs> only $25, including shipping and handling. I'm going to put that up on the website. Yeah, we'll put that up on the website if you want. Okay, and I, I'll give you a toll-free number if they want to use Visa or MasterCard. We want to make it easy. It's uh, one eight seven seven four five seven zero two three two. That's eight seven seven four five seven zero two three two. Or if you still use checks, and you know that part of the credit check on people is whether they're interested in UFOs, and if they are, they never write bad checks. You know that. Uh, <laughs> they, they can send me a check or any other information they want to send me at. Stan Friedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, Post Office Box 958, Houghton, H-O-U-L-T-O-N. That's not Houghton like Michigan, but Houghton, H-O-U-L-T-O-N. Maine, which, believe it or not, is M-E, not M-A. <laughs> 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 Massachusetts, and, and I can't help any of these things. Uh, Houghton, Maine, 04730. Dash oh nine five eight. That's for all three uh, items: the CD-ROM, the book, which is autographed, and the video, 
and that includes shipping and handling for 25 bucks. So we'll, you can't beat that. We'll take that information and put it up on the website for you. And every order that gets sent out will also include a free list of books and papers and all that jazz. So cool. I, I mention this because it's all I want hard. One. I want <laughs> what's, what's legitimate and what isn't. You know, the Internet has got all kinds of garbage on it. Yeah, there's an order blank at my website, but still, it's nice to have a list of stuff, you know. Well, you know that's the interesting thing too. I because um, we we saw the we, we we interviewed another fellow who is very into the uh, Philadelphia experiment and Montauk and all the energy stuff that Tesla oh, yeah. was doing, and uh, and he has videos available on his site, and uh, we we got them. We got yeah, a we copy. did we did get a copy, and um, we watched these videos. We went over to Scott L, the you know the the fellow who had contacted you from Ghostly Talk, went over to his house, and we watched these things, what, three or four Fridays in a row. Yeah, there was a lot of material. And we were dumbstruck. We were absolutely amazed at, because he runs into the same stuff you're talking about with the cover-ups and the lies and the, you can't get the information and it takes, you know, years to get any information. He runs into, you know, with his particular topic, he gets the uh, the same kind of you know runarounds, and and it's very difficult to pry anything out of uh, the government. So he made uh, you know he put these videos together, and and I've been telling everybody I know I'm like you've got to get a hold of these things, you know. Mm. Same thing with your information, Stanton. I mean, you you spent how much time? Well, a lifetime working on Roswell since 1978. Wow, <laughs> it's a lifetime. A for lifetime. Me. Yeah, that, that that is, and uh, yeah, my brother was born in '76, so you're talking a <laughs> lifetime, lifetime exactly. and uh, of information uh, for for 25 bucks. I mean, my gosh! So so I'm I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to go around and tell everyone you've got to get a hold of this stuff. Good idea. I like that. <laughs> I, I really I really believe in it. I I really believe in it because when I saw because I had never ordered anything off the internet or anything like that, you know, because I was. Even though I'm, you know, kind of technical and everything, I, I didn't want to do it. And uh, we got those videos, though. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, the Bill Nell videos, mm. what that is. And, um, and ever since then, I'm like, there's something to this. Yes. You know, to, to get the Bill Nell videos, to get, Stan, to get your, your video and, and CD-ROM and book, um, for, for that price, you can't buy a book like that in, in a store for 25 no. bucks. And you're going to get, you know, that and a CD and the... Uh, the video mm. and the internet has it's got while it doesn't have the actual information it's got the availability of that information i i think it's amazing well for so, people uh, who are particularly hepped on uh, majestic 12 for example uh, i just put on my webmaster uh, peter blinn who lives in michigan incidentally mm. uh just put on my paper on an update on the operation majestic 12 documents which has actual documents on it, which is a pain, as you know, to, to scan and all that. Oh, yeah. To fit them in, in with text, especially since my, my version that I had typed had curly commas. I didn't even know they existed, but he pointed them out to me. <laughs> <laughs> He's, I'm, uh, you might say, technologically sort of retarded. I mean, I used computers a long time ago, but you know, the way they did things back then was you filled out input data sheets, a girl uh, key-punched cards, a whole box of cards. They go up with their big reel of tape to a separate building where the big computer was, 
and they'd run it up there. You didn't touch a computer, and they'd bring you back a whole pile of uh, output. And so you didn't have anything to do with the computer. Now, you better understand what you got back, which is another question, you know. But right, it could have been... You didn't touch the hardware, and, uh, you know, that was the rule. But uh, so it, it's it's useful to people, but I, I get back to this Operation Majestic 12 document. There, I have an update, uh, which is, I don't know, the equivalent of 25 pages. It doesn't look like it, you know, in computer text. But with these documents, if they want to see the latest attempts to debunk the documents, and there's another paper on there where I, uh, it's a review, a 9,000-word review of a book, Case MJ-12, which attacks the documents, the whole book attacks the documents, and I deal point by point with problems with the book. But, you know, I get so sick of dealing with armchair theorists, as I call them, the people who sit at home and say, hmm, this doesn't look right to me, that's probably a phony document. You've got to go to the darn archives to look at other documents. Uh, and I must admit that I, I earned $1,000 by proving one of the big skeptics wrong, uh, Philip Class who's been attacking UFOs for, let's see, 35 years or so, has written uh, five anti-UFO books. It was the senior avionics editor for Aviation Week and Space Technology. Not in good health now, but he kept up a valiant fight. Anyway, he challenged me on the typeface on one of the MJ-12 documents. Perhaps I hadn't noticed that it was the large pica type. Instead of elite. Instead mm. of elite. Mm -hmm. Here he had nine documents from the National Security Council that he got from the Eisenhower Library that were all done in elite. And he challenged me to find provide copies of any other documents. He had a bunch of criteria from that time frame from the NSC and stuff. Done in the same size and style type. And to encourage me to respond more quickly, he offered me $100 each for every genuine such document, up to a limit of 10 unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing here is he'd never been to the Eisenhower Library, and I'd spent literally weeks there. And uh, so I went to my file cabinet and pulled out... 20 documents done in pica type. They didn't meet all his criteria, and I was just toying with him because I was planning on going to the Eisenhower Library. So he accepted two of those, and then I, when I went to the Eisenhower Library, while I was looking for useful stuff, I pulled out 14 documents that met all his criteria. I sent him copies, and I sent him an invoice for $1,000, and he paid it. Wow. Now, he wow. told everybody about challenging me, but nobody about paying me. Of course. <laughs> and I well, included a copy of his check in my, quote, final report in Operation Majestic 12, and he got very mad at that. <laughs> and to sue me, his father was a lawyer, so he could write those, you know, threatening lawyerly letters. Of course. I told him, I said, look, you sent me the check. I Xeroxed it. I cashed it. It was good. I can do whatever I please the copy that I made. Mm -hmm. And he, he shut up about that anyway. But here's, here's the funny part. Uh, the Eisenhower Library, as I said, had 300,000 pages of National Security Council material. How could anybody in his right mind generalize from nine to 300,000? I mean, you know, if you, there were 100 documents and you had 99 of them, they were all done on the same typewriter, uh, the missing one was probably done on the same typewriter too. <laughs> But from nine to three hundred thousand. 
Well, it, it actually though that's that's um, I, I have to say it, I even see both sides of that because he he happened uh, fortunately he happened to put his money where his mouth was right and then he he got burned he got burned but the that, only time he ever did it yeah. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing that I think people uh, should look for because. If if you actually did then, which you did, you went and proved, okay, they had more than just elite typewriters at the NSA, right? Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. So so they had more than just that. You went and you proved it through, you know, your research. and um, But that's the kind of thing that could have gone on for years. Somebody says, no, 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 it's, it, it could be fake because it's not done on an official government typewriter or whatever. And that's the kind of thing that, that actually takes people's um, efforts away from actually trying to find the truth. Well, the kicker here is, again, uh, somebody was challenging me about, you know, why should I read a book about MJ-12 documents? I want computer, uh, I mean, Internet discussions. And, <laughs> uh, there's no way to answer that question on the Internet because those 300,000 pages aren't on the Internet. Right. And the same thing goes with, uh, <laughs> this is a funny one, uh, <laughs> the... Uh, one of the documents has a strange security marking of top secret restricted. And all kinds of people, including uh, government archivists, were saying that was never used at that time. Well, I'd seen secret restricted. I'd seen confidential restricted. You don't see many tops, formerly top secret documents. But the uh, General Accounting Office, because of Congressman Stephen Schiff from New Mexico, did a Big, made a big effort to find documents about Roswell. And in their 400-page report, in which they said we went here, we went there, we talked to these guys, we talked to those guys, buried on page 80 of this uh, is a little statement that on this date we visited this facility looking at uh, Air Force documents up through top secret, and we didn't find anything about Roswell. However, we noted several instances of the use of top secret restricted, even though we had been told, Majestic 12 in parenthesis, that it was not in use at that time. So I called the GAO people, I had talked to three of them, and uh, I said, hey, I need to get copies of those. Stan, you can't get copies. They're still classified. We had searches for everything, but we couldn't make copies. We couldn't give you that. But this here were people making claims. This was the GAO itself, the Government Accounting Office? That they, could they set up a project for Congressman Stephen Schiff, who was complaining that he had gone to the uh, Air Force, and gone, they referred him to the archives, who said, those guys know we don't have anything on Roswell. So he was talking to the GAO about something else and said, boy, I sure wish you could help me out on this one. I mean, these guys are giving me the runaround. A congressman on a aren't accustomed to getting a runaround when they talk to the military, you know, because right. control the budget strings. That's the, We like to be nice-nice with these guys, you know. But uh, <laughs> The GAO themselves wasn't aware until they ran up against it that Top Secret Restricted was used at that time. Yeah, they, they didn't know, but they report, honestly reported And they said, it. yeah, and they reported it in their report. Wow. And so, but I'm saying, you, you can't be an armchair theorist and... and do any of this stuff. you got to go looking. And I, I was very pleased. With one more example. One, last time I was at the Eisenhower Library, last November, uh, a, a strong contention has been that the MJ-12 documents must be a fraud 
because it says briefing officer Admiral Roscoe J. Hillencoder. But he was only a rear admiral. He would never have lied about his rank. Well, that sounds good. And then you look at the list of members. There's 12 guys listed. And all the ranks, half are military roughly, uh, are generic ranks. And for those who are unfamiliar with that term, uh, you can use the word general to mean uh, brigadier general, major general, lieutenant general, four-star general. Mm -hmm. Conversation. You can answer your phone, General Jones, even if you're only a brigadier general. Mm -hmm. And the same with admiral, rear admiral, vice admiral, full admiral. Uh, you know, it's okay to say admiral. But the, the real proof of the pudding is there were some memos that I managed to dig out written by a brigadier general, Andrew Goodpaster. Now, he was ICE staff secretary the whole time he was in the White House. <clears throat> and he used to keep track of meetings that were held. He'd list the attendees at the meeting. He would sit in on these meetings, usually civilian and military, uh, Ike and uh, cabinet officers, military guys, whatever. And he'd write a two- to six-page memo, sometimes top secret, sometimes secret, uh, sometimes unclassified, I guess. And uh, he'd list the guys who attended the meeting at the top and always used generic ranks, including for himself, General Andrew Goodpaster. The memo is signed, Brigadier General Andrew Goodpaster, <laughs> proving that the objection that uh, Hill and Coder would never have called himself Admiral is false. Right. And so y you can't do this at a long distance, you know what I mean? You you've got to go looking. And I say this because I'd love to see more people involved in real, you know, archival research and despite the Internet, there are still things that can be done, useful contributions to our understanding of what went on. And, oh, you know, there is one great Internet site, incidentally, the Black Vault. John Greenwald has compiled thousands of government documents about UFOs, declassified ones, of course. <laughs> uh, you know, that goes without saying, I think. He's got a huge collection, and... One of the interesting things that John did, he, he's only 24. Uh, he's been at this for like eight or nine years. I mean, wow. uh, it's the new face of ufology, if you will. But John uh, got pilots' manuals for some of our top military aircraft now, you know. And within them, there are instructions. What should a pilot do, airport, if he sees an unidentified surface ship? an unidentified submarine, an unidentified aircraft or missile, or an unidentified flying object. Wow. Mm. Right and in the middle. He has letters from the Air Force saying, we are no longer interested in UFOs. <laughs> Somebody's lying. <laughs> Somebody's lying. Yeah, there's some committee somewhere had to uh, say, you know, you've got to include all this when you write your technical manual. Mm. So it must be important. Yeah, and, you know, uh, let me throw a quote at you um, that I find very impressive. Um, it was a memo written in 1969 by a Brigadier General, Carol Bolander, B-O-L-E-N-D-E-R. He'd been in charge of the Air Force's contribution to the Lunar Excursion Module. And so we landed on the moon in July of 69, and that ended the 12-hour days he'd been working. 
And one of his first assignments was, what should we do about Project Blue Book, the Air Force UFO study, so-called? And the Condon Committee had reported in early 69 with their massively misrepresentative book, the scientific study on UFOs. But <laughs> he had said, Blue Book should probably be closed because it's not contributing anything to science. <clears throat> and Bolander uh, agreed, basically, with that, but he noted that reports of UFOs which could affect national security are made in accordance with Joint Army-Navy Air Force Publication 146 or Air Force Manual 55-11 and are not part of the Blue Book system. Two paragraphs later, he's saying, if Project Blue Book is closed, the public won't have a place to report UFO sightings. However, as previously noted, reports which could affect national security continue to be investigated using the regulations set up for that purpose. Now, I managed to locate General Bolander. I frankly don't know. This is a number of years ago. I don't know whether he's still alive or not. Uh, and he fully understood the significance of what he had said. That who cares about what Joe Blow sees standing out on a you know, out in his driveway, he does care, Uncle Sam does care about, say a saucer goes down the runway at a sack base where nuclear weapons are stored. <laughs> yeah. That's happened. Now, that's of interest. The question, of course, is, so where are all those reports? And uh, that's a question that hasn't been satisfactorily answered. Well, all these things we've talked about, as far as just cover-up after cover-up after white spot after black spot after cover-up. And it's and we're, I guess we'll reach a new low here. Because, <laughs> I mean, we, we've asked other people the same thing. We asked Mark Kimmel this when he was on the show. Yeah, and, yeah. We, and, I mean, I, I just want your opinion, maybe what your theory is on this. Why do they keep covering everything up? Why is, is there this urgency to cover all these things up that have clearly been documented, possibly, or they have been seen. And then appear aloof about it as well. Yeah. You know, they're like, we're not interested in it at all, but you're not getting your hands on it. Exactly. It suggests six reasons for all governments. Remember, this is a worldwide phenomenon, not mm -hmm. limited to the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm a dual citizen of Canada and the United States, and I complain about both governments, but <laughs> <laughs> this is a worldwide phenomenon. Six reasons. First, you want to figure out how the darn things work. They make wonderful weapons delivery and defense systems, can fly circles literally around anything we got flying. Uh -huh. You set up your secret project. You've got the wreckage from Roswell and probably several other instances. You can backwards engineer, yeah. Well, there's one guy listed 60. Now, even if we say there's only 20, there's <laughs> still a lot. Yeah. You set up your secret project, and rule number one for security is you can't tell your friends without telling your enemies because they listen to the radio, watch television, read the newspapers, etc. Mm -hmm. The second problem is the other side of the very same thing. What if the other guy figures out how they work before you do? How do you defend against them? You don't want them to know you know they know, and you certainly want them to know anything you've learned to go with what they have learned. This sounds like a junior high argument. Yeah, know? I mean, it really well, is. Okay, I'm not let's keep going. No, it's true. I'm not telling Betty because then she'll tell so-and-so, and then she'll tell so-and-so, and it'll get on, and everyone will know then. You know, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. Now, the third reason is different. It's what I call the political reason. If an announcement were to be made by two highly trusted individuals around the world, say tomorrow, and it's hard for me to find two people trusted around the world, but let, let's say the queen and the pope.
That's my favorite couple. (laughs) Yeah, that's an odd couple. Uh, Saying that indeed some UFOs are alien spacecraft. Uh, What would happen? Well, I think church attendance would go up. uh, Mental hospital admissions would go up. The stock market would go down because uncertainty is always the enemy there. But I think the biggest thing that would happen, based on 600 college lectures, is that the younger generation, which, as I noted earlier, unlike me, was never alive when there wasn't a space program, would immediately push for a new view of ourselves, instead of as Americans, Canadians, Cubans, Greeks, Peruvians, Polish, Chinese, whatever, Mm. uh, as Earthlings. And a lot of people would say, hey, gee, that'd be great, until you realize there's no government on this planet of which I am aware that wants its citizens to owe their primary allegiance to the planet instead of that individual government. Nationalism's the only game in town. Now, there's a fourth problem. The religious right, which have been strong allies of the Republican Party for a long time, uh, have loudly proclaimed, people like Jerry Falwell and um, Pat, Pat Robertson, that this is the only... Uh, intelligently uh, manned <laughs> woman <laughs> people planet in the universe <laughs> uh, that we are everything all this other stuff is um, the work of the devil and Pat even challenged one time he said that anybody who thinks there's other intelligent life besides on earth should be publicly stoned to death according to the bible of course <laughs> and I don't wear a stone proof vest but uh, <laughs> uh, they'd be up the creek without a religious panel if an announcement were to be made. Now, there are religions, incidentally, that do accept the notion. The Muslims, the Mormons, the Hindus, uh, etc. And then there's a fifth reason. This is quite different. It's what I call economic. Now, if the announcement were made, obviously not quietly, there's no way to do that, but carefully. Not like War of the Worlds, you know. I mean, the people in New Jersey had a genuine reason to panic if they could believe what they were hearing, that Martians were destroying New Jersey. I was there at the time, but I didn't hear the program. Mm -hmm. uh, Maybe it's not such a bad idea. Anyway, New Jersey's a great place to be from. Far from, I (laughs) 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 Sorry. (laughs) Couldn't resist it. I lived the first 19 years of my life there, and I haven't lived there since. (laughs) But uh, if an announcement were to be made uh, reasonably carefully... A lot of people would say, well, look, uh, they're coming here. We're not going there. Obviously, they're more technologically advanced than we are. That means that soon there'll be new modes of energy production, ground transport, air transport, computers, communication systems, economic chaos. Mm -hmm. And reminiscent of, oh, roughly 15 years ago when we were saying to the Russians, if only you would have freedom and elections and... Democracy and capitalism, everything would be great. And they've had all those things, and everything's terrible. We're not very good at large-scale economic transitions. So I can understand all that. Now, I said a sixth reason, and that was what I mentioned before. If uh, uh, we know that a number of aircraft have been either destroyed or captured or sent off to an alien zoo... uh, we may not want to say that very loud because maybe a lot of pilots wouldn't want to fly anymore. And a lot of their families, of those who died, might be very upset to find out they'd been lied to, wouldn't they? And those are six solid reasons right there. Definitely. I mean... Yeah, in other words, I'm not defending those. I'm saying I can understand those. And the biggest, of course, that encompasses everything else is the desire 
Well, that's what it all comes down to, is that we're, we are on this global arena, and we do have people that are in higher forms of power than we are. Yes. And if that's, that's obvious, that if we were to get confirmation tomorrow from the Pope and the Queen, let's say, uh, that there are, that some of these craft that have visited us are extraterrestrial, like you said, we would, especially the younger generation, because I'm already thinking that way myself, um, that there is more out there than just this planet, and that the gods that walk this, the people that want to be gods that walk this planet, they would start getting laughed at more, I think. And what better way to bring someone down from power than well, to laugh at them? That, and they'd be like, why Why didn't you tell us sooner? Yeah, well, yeah. Me, exactly. It'd be like a whole other Michael Mormon. Angry, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys, I have to say, it is that time again, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. The end of the show. Mm-hmm. This We didn't even take break. No. Didn't even take break. This is one of those shows. It's like you can't. No, we're not stopping. We're not breaking our train of thought. We're not going to do anything like that. We're just going to go with it. You just can't take a break when you're talking to Stanton Friedman. That's for sure. Your website is stanfriedman.com, right? Right. So www. Battle with Seth Shopbeck is on coast to coast on July 21st. Three hours. Ooh, awesome. Stan, I wanted to bring up something real quick. You're going to be at the Para World Expo. In um, October 21st through the 24th, is that correct? Yes. And are you going to be there all four days or just... Oh, yes. I've got seven different things they've got me doing. Really? I'm doing lectures and workshops and... uh, (laughs) I'm going to be busy. I'm planning on going. But good. I'll see you there. Uh, Incidentally, I've been at the L.A. Convention Center. It's a huge place. Yes, I think it's going to be a blast. I'm I'm jealous because I don't get to go. go. Well, it's in October. I'm That's scared of California. Think about it. <laughs> oh, falling off the yeah. into the ocean. We'll My luck, out. it would happen. You guys, we have to make way for W Paranormal coming up next on Pioneer. Uh-huh. I have to say thank you so very, thank very you, much, Sam, Sam thank and you. Friedman, for for being our guest today. Just so much it's been my pleasure. Just stay on the line for us, uh, sir. Uh, we'll, we're going to just log off the show yep. here. Uh, hang out for one more sec. Um, that's it, man. We we're out of here. That's it. I'm burned out. Uh, I'm, I, I was burned out when I got here. We're gonna get. <laughs> we're gonna get this archive up as soon as possible. This will be up to well, as long as we get the right archive. We will burned out. I will guarantee and it. Transported this time. via car. I to guarantee it. This the time. rendezvous point with yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> Behind the bush, the secret yeah, handshake. You know, yeah. And uh, we will be back then with another ghostly talk next week yeah. from 7 p.m. till 9 p.m. Eastern Time on Pioneer Radio Network. That's pioneer.rolo.net. Our website, of course, www.ghostlytalk.com, and we will link up uh, Stanton Friedman's uh, website from there. We're going to get that information out there, too. And get the information about the special offer as yeah, well, yeah. because I say get it. Absolutely. Un- I'm until, it. Yeah, until next week, I'm Doug. I'm Scott L. And I am Karma. And that's it. We're out of here. deny the existence of things because they cannot be weighed and measured. It will rather lead us to believe that the wonders and subtleties of possible existence surpass all that our mental powers allow us clearly to perceive. We must ignore no existence whatsoever.
We may variously interpret or explain its meaning and origin, but if a phenomenon does exist, it demands some kind of explanation. A quote from the Principles of Science, William Stanley Jevons, 1835-1882.